After a hiatus over the summer, we return back to looking at the life of King David, and we're on the brink, really, of a change in his fortunes, as from chapter 11, things start to go pear-shaped. It's all downhill from here. So, while there's some brightness on the horizon, we're going to look at this chapter 10. This morning, now, I try to spare congregations as much as possible, the internal workings of passages, but I'm afraid in order to really see what is happening in chapter 10, we need to see it in its overall development, the overall development of the storyline of the book. So here's some things to bear in mind. First thing to bear in mind is that this record in chapter 10 uh, is looking backwards and unpacking information that we were given in chapter 8. Chapter 8 is a record of the wars of King David. It's Uh, It finds its climax in the statement in verse 6 of chapter 8. The Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. But really what it is is a record of one war after another without very little detail. And here in chapter 10 we have detail about one particular aspect of that war. A surprising aspect in this sense. That whereas all the other wars were fought with with people in, within the orbit of the territories promised to David, this war with the Ammonites was outside of Israel, over the river Jordan, on the eastern shore of the river Jordan, and it's quite surprising, <clears throat> if you read chapter 8, surprising that the territory of the Ammonites ever became David's territory. So we need to understand, how did that happen? Well, chapter 10 tells us how that happened. That's the first thing. Second thing. The record looks forward. It looks forward to the events of chapters 11 and 12. Very famously known as the story of David and Bathsheba. I'm going to question that description, by the way, when we get there. But but that's the description that very often is used and our translation adds it in the beginning of chapter 11. But it's a famous story of how David commits adultery and murder. It's not a good story. But this chapter helps us to understand the context in which that story took place. Because when you get to chapter 11, verse 1, you find that in the time of the year when the kings go to war, David had sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and uh, they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. Preachers make a lot about the fact that David remained at Jerusalem. Because it preaches quite well. But usually they totally, they see this as a totally negative thing. Well, chapter 10 is in the Bible to explain why David remained in Jerusalem. It was his normal practice that his soldiers went out, they started the war, and then as time went on, David came with additional forces from Jerusalem to finish the job off. It was a normal practice with the king's Certainly was the practice of David, and that's why he happened to be in Jerusalem at this time when his men were at war. Anyway, we'll, we'll pick that up next time. But it's a little interesting thing there. So you've got to come back next week to find out more details. Thirdly, thirdly, the story, and this is absolutely vital for understanding the story of this morning, the events of chapter 10 are part of one narrative that comprises chapters, as we have it in our versions, 
chapters 9 and 10. These chapter divisions are an absolute pain in the neck, really, when you're teaching the Bible. Helpful to find your way around. Pain in the neck when people think these are two separate things. So they're, they're together. And what brings them together so that they're one story, chapter 9 and 10, record one story so that we get these things into our heads, are these things, these elements. Each of these two incidents that are reported in chapter 9 and 10, each of them shows us David wanting to treat a son well for the sake of his father. Each of the stories shows David wanting to treat a son well for the sake of his father. So in chapter 9 he wants to treat this young man or this man Mephibosheth well, not because he had an easy, easy name to pronounce, but because of his father Jonathan. In chapter 10 he wants to treat this uh, other character, uh, Hanun, well, because of his father, Nahash, which has nothing to do with drugs or anything like that, called Hash. Okay, so there's the first element that connects these two incidents. The second element that connects these two incidents is that in both cases, it is King David who takes the initiative in reaching out to these two people. He reaches out to these two people and he takes initiative in doing that. The third element is that in reaching out, in David reaching out to Mephibosheth in chapter 9 and Hanun in chapter 10, the same Hebrew word is used about David's motivation. Now you will not pick that up from reading the English translation. We are using a great translation called the ESV, which is a, supposedly the English standard version. should be the American English starting version. Oh, there you go. I understand all that. The ESV, normally we think of the ESV and we think of the extremely sound version. But sometimes it can be the extremely silly version. And you understand it's not the Bible that's wrong, it's the translation that's wrong. The Bible is infallible in Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, but in its translation into English, sometimes they get it wrong. And they get it wrong here, because here is one Hebrew word, chesed. And chesed is translated, for example, in 1 Samuel chapter 20, in describing the relationship between David and Jonathan, the crown prince, and it says that Jonathan asked David if he would show steadfast love, chesed, towards his family in the future. Now you come to chapter, chapter 9. David wants to fulfill this promise that he has made to Jonathan. He wants to show chesed to any members of Jonathan's family who remain. What does the extremely silly version do? It translates it, kindness, which is a bit weak, really. Well, then you come to chapter 10, and you would never know it was the same word. But here it is in chapter 10, and it says, I will deal loyally, Hebrew chesed, with Hamun, the son of Nahash, 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 as his father dealt with chesed, with me. You need to have that in your head to understand that we're talking the same language. These two stories are 
put together so that you get to understand and learn what Chesed, covenant love, or covenant kindness, or covenant loyalty and faithfulness look like in action. What is a covenant? It's a kind of a treaty or a contract in which promises are made, oaths are given, threats are made, and in which people are bound together in, in a relationship. And that relationship undergirds the whole story. Now, with that in mind then, I want to look at chapter 10 and say that covenant love is still the foremost idea in this passage, 9 and 10, together. We see covenant love offered. Hesed is offered. And when you get to chapter 10 and verse 2, and you read about David wanting to treat this son with Chesed, you're meant to have in your mind, you're meant to have in your mind what you've just learned about Chesed and what that looks like. Here's what it looks like. Here is Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan. David and Jonathan would, you would have thought, have been rivals, but Jonathan was one of the people, one of the earliest people to recognize Two things, that his dad, Saul, was a bad king and that God was going to remove him. Number two, God was not going to let him, Jonathan, inherit the throne. Number three, that God had chosen David, his friend David, to be king instead of him. He was a very godly and a very gracious man, Jonathan. And Jonathan had come to David and said, David, I understand what God's plan and purpose is. And I, I'm going to ask you that when you become king, you don't do what all the other kings do when they ascend the throne and annihilate and obliterate all the family of the rival king or the, or the earlier king so that there are no rivals or threats to your throne. Will you please show chesed? Covenant love. Covenant kindness. Will you swear to it, David? And David had sworn an oath that he would keep his covenant with Jonathan. Fast forward. Chapter 9. God, David says, Is there anybody in Jonathan's family left to whom I can show chesed, covenant kindness, and covenant love? And they told him about Mephibosheth, a crippled man. And David had showered affection on him. David had given him his protection. Nobody was going to lay a finger on this man because he had the protection of the king. David restored the man's inheritance. He was the grandson of Saul, the former king, the rival king, the bitter opponent of David. But David restored to Mephibosheth the inheritance that would have been his if his father, grandfather had lived. He was generous to this man. And thirdly, he adopted Mephibosheth into his own family. He sat at the king's table. He had his meals in the royal palace with the king every night as one of the king's sons. Generous love. Covenant-keeping love. Loving kindness. To use the old King James Version, a translation of the word. Chesed, that's what it looks like. It is generosity. There is no threat in it. There is compassion. There is kindness. There is love. There is faithfulness in it. It's all packed into this word. 
And that's to be in your mind when you read these words. David says, I will deal with hesed, with covenant love, with Hanun, the son of Nahash, as his father showed hesed to me. Now, I think this is very important because one, one study Bible that I will not mention, but it's associated with our translation. One study Bible says that David here is thinking only at a political level. But if you see this as one record, you, you need to see our understanding of chapter 10 verse 2 has to be seen through the lens of this picture of what covenant love looks like in action. I'm going to tell you something else. This is for free. David is going to need chesed very shortly. David, the king, is going to need someone to show him covenant love, steadfast love. He's going to need God to show him covenant love because of his own actions and behavior. So when he says, and he sends messengers to this king, Hanun, and offers him covenant love, you need to see that he is offering him something positive, something that we have to see through the lens of the way in which he treated Mephibosheth. And that throws into great relief then the story as it unfolds, because here we see covenant love rejected. Covenant love rejected. You see, apparently, and this, this is important, the use of this word hesed suggests that there had been some form of treaty relationship between Nahash, uh, the father of this man, Hinun, and the king of the Ammonites, and David. Nahash, we're told back in chapter uh, in a previous chapter, was an enemy of Saul, the rival king, the previous king, and, uh, and they had a relationship, and, uh, and Nahash had been kind to David. He was one of a number of Gentiles, non-Jews, who were kind to David. David responds, reaching out to this man's son. What happens? Well, as it unfolds, look at verse 3. The men come with their overture of kindness. King David wants to show you covenant love and loyalty. If you'd asked them a question and you said, well, what does that look like? What does that look like with kings when King David does that to someone? They could have told the story of Mephibosheth. This is what it looks like. Protection. Restoration. Of inheritance. Adoption. And being treated like one of the king's sons. Well, what happens? Look at verse 3. The princes of the Ammonites said to Hanun, the, their lord, do you think because David has sent comforters to you that he's honoring your father? Has not David sent his servants to you to search the city and to spy it out and to overthrow it? In other words, what they're doing is, do you notice that? They're saying, don't trust him. Don't just take David, you know, at face value. Don't you see he has ulterior motives? His real motives are... He sent these men to spy out the disposition of your forces so that he might attack you. He is undermining the word and reputation and character of David. 
Now you'd be forgiven, if you know your Bible well, you'd be forgiven for saying here a connection with the original sin. You put the clock back, right back to the beginning of human history. And there you find that in the original sin, it is the devil, the serpent, who imputes bad motives to God. The woman reports to the serpent the things that God has said and promised. And the serpent responds by saying, you will not surely die. God says you'll die. You won't die. You won't die. God knows that when you eat, when you eat of the fruit of this tree, your eyes will be open. You will be like God, knowing good or evil. Don't you see that God doesn't want you to eat the fruit of this tree? Because you'll get something God doesn't want you to have. God is holding something back from you. He is denying you something. You, therefore, cannot trust his word. Here these advisors are accusing David of spying, of being insincere, of concealing his hostile intent. And there's a principle right here that you find right through the Bible. And it's this, that the enemy of God and the enemy of human beings will impute bad motives to God. All the time, he will impute bad motives to God. Here you are. You're a mature Christian person. You read your Bible, you pray, you go to church. You've been serving God all your Christian life. Everybody else thinks that you are such a mature, together Christian person. And then something happens in your life. Some tragedy strikes. And there in the, in the, in the mid, midnight of your life, as you're tossing and turning in your bed, suddenly the thought comes by spontaneous generation into your head. And you think, why has God let this happen to me? What is God doing? Where did that come from? The Bible says it comes from the pit of hell. It comes from Satan, who loves to impute bad motives to God and to God's anointed. He insinuates doubt or distrust of God's word. You see, when these people were questioning David's character, they were questioning the Lord's anointed, the Messiah in their time in history. David writes about this period, uh, the period covered in chapter 8 with these various wars and these various assaults against him. And he describes in Psalm 2 the nations raging and the peoples plotting in vain and the kings of the earth taking their stand together and the rulers taking counsel together against the Lord and against the Lord's king, the Lord's anointed. And here's what they say. Here's, their, here's what they say. Let us cast, let us burst their bonds apart. Let us cast away their cords from us. You see what they're thinking? They're saying to themselves, what the Lord's anointed wants to do is to put on us bonds and cords, fetters and chains. These nations were seeing or thinking of the, of the reign of God and the God's Christ. They were seeing the reign of God and God's Christ as something restrictive, something, something that, that put fetters on them, that, that, that that, that took away their freedom. And that is the way still we find the claims of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, still to this day are being painted in these terms, thought of in these terms. 
you, you talk about the good news of the gospel and many people will react and they will say, we don't want that. They are restrictive. His laws restrictive of our freedom. His son, too exclusive. Too exclusive. Well, it's only too exclusive if it's not true that he is the only way of salvation. And what they don't see is this. What we are meant led to see in these two chapters together, we are led to see the generous, loving kindness of God that lies behind it and the willingness of God there mirrored in the life of David to shower, to shower upon us his kindness and his goodness. Well, what did they do? They dishonor the envoys and messengers and representatives of David. You see, these these envoys and representatives, even back then, should have been treated treated with what we call today diplomatic immunity, that they should not have been mistreated in this way. A couple of things happen. They're sent back with their beards shaved half off. This is kind of Kind of a weird thing, you know, you look this way and they're clean shaven, you look that way and they've got a beard. Kind of a a weird thing to do. It's quite comical, really. But it wasn't funny then. It wasn't funny then because Israelites were forbidden by the law. Israelite men were forbidden by the law to trim their beards. I'm really glad I don't live then, by the way. Really glad. But they were forbidden to trim their beards because that was a symbol of their Israeliteness, of their status of their, their identity as people who belonged to the Israel of God. Not only that, but they had long clothes, and these clothes had tassels. And these tassels were meant to remind men, Israelite men particularly, of the law of God. See, if you were a soldier and you were an Israelite soldier, you'd be tempted to do what many soldiers back then used to do, and that is to abuse power in the heat of battle, to do to pillage and rape and so on, and, and kill indiscriminately. You'd be tempted to do that. The tassels on your clothes were to remind you of the law of God that limited violence. They were meant to remind men of where their ultimate sanction was in the law of God, in the way they behaved themselves. So when they were sent back, naked from the waist down, the tassels and the robes discarded. Not only was it an embarrassment and a shame, it was an insult. It was an insult to the nation of Israel and to their king. It's as if the president of Russia responded to an American general coming with a message from the commander-in-chief to the president of Russia by going up to him and stripping him of his decorations on his chest and then taking the American flag and burning it ceremonially in the Kremlin, would that not be an insult? An insult directed specifically against the American people. What these men did, they they knew themselves. Do you notice that they knew themselves that they would become a stink in the nostrils of David. It was an intentional offense. It was, it was to demonstrate they were rejecting the offer of covenant kindness. So we have covenant kindness offered and rejected, and then thirdly, we have it withdrawn. We have it withdrawn. 
I told you a bit about the background. That wasn't all they did. Having sent them back, knowing the effect that this would have, understanding clearly, they used this as a way of precipitating a conflict between Israel and the Ammonites. David had obviously no idea, no desire to do this. They precipitate a conflict by doing what? Well, they go and they hire five separate armies and muster them against David. You can read about that in verse 6. So here are five armies now combined together against David. David has to respond. So he sends two, he sends two of his generals, two brothers, Abishai and Joab, to face them. And they find themselves caught in a pincer movement between the Ammonites on the one hand and the Syrians on the other. I don't know if you're into battlefields. Some of you may be into battlefields. I love to go around and see Civil War and, and uh, the, the other war that you won and Britain lost. And see the disposition of the troops. And, and, uh, and it's brilliant to see how, how these generals place troops in order to effect the victory. And these two guys, they come up with this plan. The very simple plan that the Syrians are too strong for me, yeah, then you shall help me. And if the Ammonites are too strong for you, then I'll come and help you. Let's split up, he said. They, they say, let's split up. You go one way, we'll, I'll go the other way. And then we'll come to each other's rescue if we're really in a hard spot. But the main thing, I want you to notice, not a lot of detail is given about the battle itself, unfortunately. The results are given. The Syrians, to the Syrians against the Israelites, the Syrians... No. They fled before them. In the case of the Ammonites against the Israelites, the Ammonites thought the Syrians had a very good idea. And they went and fled as well. And they went into their city, into their fort, hid there. Total victory. But Abishai and Joab didn't know it was going to be a victory. They were overwhelmed with the numbers of these five armies arrayed against them. And so, just as before they went into battle, if you look at verses 11 and 12, you'll see that Joab gives us the only theological bit of meat in the whole passage. And it's brilliant theology. It's brilliant theology from the most unlikely source. Because this man, Joab, was a hard-bitten soldier. I mean, if Joab was well known that if you had a problem... If you were up against it, you took the bloodiest way out you could possibly imagine. That was, that, that's what Joab was like. Which is all right for us sitting here in this nice, comfortable church. At least it's comfortable for you. I'm getting a bit warm up here because of all the hot air that's coming in my direction. But, but here we all are sitting in our comfort. When you're on the battlefield, things aren't always straightforward. They aren't always straightforward. So he was a tough man. He would have made, if you know Jack Bauer in 24, the series, my hero. Jack Bauer is a cuddly teddy bear in comparison to Joab. Let me, let me make that very clear. But here's what Joab says. Be of good courage. Let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what seems good to him. And I say this sometimes, good theology comes from the wrong 
people. This theology is good theology. We need to learn from Joab. Some of us have a problem that there, is, there are some things we will not let God talk to us about. And there are some people we will not let God talk to us through. We need to get the theology of Job in our minds. John Calvin, in his commentary, uh, spends some time, not in the commentary, in his sermons, uh, spends some time reminding us as he looks at the story of uh, Joab and these words. He reminds us that God hasn't made specific promises to us. God has never promised, for example, that when you got married, that your marriage was going to be the perfect marriage made in heaven and would last 50, 60 years. He hasn't made to you specific promises that you, of all the families in the world, will have children and none of those children will ever be sick. God has never made a promise to you that the job that you got that was the dream job would last forever and never, you'd never lose it. He hasn't made specific promises like that to you. But he has promised, he has promised that he will always do what seems good to him. And this means that we have to live in the tension. What, what John Calvin says is we must remain in suspense about many things. There are many things in life we just don't know the outcome to. We don't know where it's going to go. We don't know how it's going to finish up in the end. There are many periods, there are many nights that you live in suspense, wondering, wondering, wondering what's going to happen. There are periods of life, sometimes extended periods of life, of unemployment, where it goes on and on and on and on, month after month sometimes, year after year, and you wonder, am I going to get a job? What is the end of this going to be? And you live in a state of suspense. That's the language Calvin uses. It's true. And in that state of suspense, you must cling on to this great fact. The Lord, Yahweh, will do what seems good to Him. You need to learn this theology. Let me tell you, you need to learn this theology if you're going to face the tough points of life. When your child is rushed to ICU, when your spouse walks out in the door, when the diagnosis and prognosis are bad, when the downturn takes your job, this is where your soul needs to find refuge. The Lord will do what seems good to Him. And as Calvin goes on to say, we have permission to doubt what is not clear to us. We have permission to doubt and to wonder and to be in suspense about many things in life that we don't know the outcomes to. That's okay. That's okay. But in the midst of our doubt and suspense and anxiousness, we are to trust that the Lord will do what seems good to him. In the end, the battle is resolved because the Messiah, the King, turns up on the field and destroys the Syrians and the Ammonites. And in the end, although that had never been the plan, the Ammonite cities become the cities of David. Well, as I wind up, let me go back to that second psalm that David wrote about this period in his life. 
Because in that second psalm, David talks about the king as the son of God. He's speaking as a prophet. He's writing as a prophet. He speaks about the king as a son of God. And he says the son of God, the king, will break his enemies with a rod of iron and dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. And he ends that psalm by appealing to people like this man, Hanun, the son of Nahash. He appeals to people and he says this, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the king. Kiss the son. Kiss his ring. Submit to him. Bow before him, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Think about that man Mephibosheth for a moment. The son of Jonathan. The grandson of Saul. Saul who is David's enemy. You would think David would get rid of him. Rub him out. Get somebody to do a hit job on him. But where is Mephibosheth? He bows before the king. And where is he today? He's in the royal palace. He has the king's secret service looking after him and caring for his protection. He's been given back an inheritance he thought he would never see. He's been given this. He has been adopted as part of the king's family. He has taken refuge from the king. In the king. In the king's presence. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. And the gospel message, the message for you this morning is, look, hey, kiss the sun. When he approaches you and he says he loves you, believe him. When he approaches you and says he wants to show you covenant kindness, believe him. Believe he wants to give you more than he's going to take away from you. Believe, believe him that he wants to enrich you more than you can possibly imagine. Believe him when he says that his motivation is pure. Why would he do this? Why would he do this? Why would he leave heaven, come to the cross? Why would he bleed and die before rising again? Why would he put himself to such effort if all he wanted to do was to strip you of things? He wants to give you more than he wants to take anything from you. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would help us to rejoice this morning in him, our greater than David, our great Messiah King, who himself has come into the world to be our Redeemer, our Savior, our friend, our generous benefactor. We pray in his strong name. Amen.